Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-hosts Matt Cummings and Weston Williams. We are live on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Call us on air. Get your voice heard. What's your opinion on what we're talking about? That's 847 866-9687. All right, tonight it's a Chalk Talk doubleheader. We get you ready for Independence Day by honoring America and its contributions to opera, looking in-depth at the works and artists we think are uniquely American and how they define the role opera serves both in our country and worldwide. And then at 9.40 p.m., it's the two-minute drill, everything you need to know from the past week in opera land, plus our team's hot takes on those stories. And the team tonight, going deep into the roster, Matt Cummings. Hello, hello. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you, too. We're the curly-haired crew tonight. Yes, that <laughs> would also include Weston Williams. Yeah, I need a haircut. Yeah, we should all go to the barber together and just get matching hairstyles. Uh, you you got the beard going on right now, Weston. Do you do like a, a summer shave or is it... I did trim it a little bit, uh, although I find that it's helpful to uh, have a certain air of anonymity when I go outside now because I'm so recognized from this podcast. You know, I just don't want to be ma- mobbed by fans and they can't see me behind this the glorious and luxurious beard. Matt Cummings, were you able to stay cool over the weekend? You know, actually, my air conditioner broke down on Sunday, uh, Saturday <laughs> oh, no. afternoon, so it's been a hot couple of days. I'm I'm really glad uh, that this that this heat wave broke. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I was out of town even in, in Michigan, and it was still hot. The World Cup has been uh, running our family since it started in the middle of June. Uh, my son's got his bracket all filled out. and oh. He and my daughter, they're at summer camp right now, so I kind of fill them in if they can't see the games. But we've watched a lot of World Cup. England playing tomorrow, my team, just praying that they cannot embarrass themselves. I posted this on Facebook. I, I feel like, as an England fan... Our expectations are so phenomenally higher than the actual talent level of the team. Mm, mm, yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you there. I mean, my expectations for England, too, are are pretty high. I think they're going to go all the way. And and You have no uh, idea what you're talking about. I have about. no idea what I'm talking about. Help me. Uh, also, of course, happening in England, and this is uh, for Oliver Camacho, our creative consultant. Wimbledon, the uh, championships start, I believe they started today, with the final being on the same day as the final of the World Cup, which is strange, kind of st- scheduling snafu. But, um, hey, you know, opera companies will also have... Uh, Competing galas. It's very <laughs> similar. Yes, exactly. Anything Dueling galas. Anything from uh, you, Cummings, from Sportsland? Did anyone hear whether or not uh, something happened with LeBron James? I feel like something might have happened with He's LeBron moving James. On. He's going to Los Angeles. L.A. Oh, the man. To the Lakers. It, it, yeah, it was only a matter of time before he got sick of Cleveland. And he, he, Look, the th- here's the thing about sports in Los Angeles. The only thing you cannot be in L.A. is boring. You can be a crummy sports team, but you cannot be boring. <laughs> <laughs> and with Le- LeBron around, it's not going to be mm-hmm. boring. Mm-hmm. I feel like so. it's we're in for an eventful couple of months. Very well put. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to, all right. Happy Monday, everybody. George Cedarquist here in studio with Matt Cummings and Weston Williams. We're going to get you ready for 
Independence Day, which is on Wednesday this year, just in case you're listening from outside of the country. It's American Independence Day on Wednesday. It always kind of throws you off when it's not like on a Friday or a Monday because no one really knows which holiday weekend <laughs> is which. Exactly. Well, you can't set off fireworks like <laughs> next weekend, so that meant we were all blowing ourselves up at the end of June. That would be weird. You know, you, you got to save it for the early days of July or else you're just you're missing out. There's a place for opera in America. There's a place for opera to be celebrated on Independence Day. But how do we define what makes an opera American? Is it is it the subject matter? Is it the nationality of the composer and or the librettist? Matt, what's your what's your metric so for this? For me, it draws on a couple of those, uh, and it and it really has to do as much with any of them as outlook. And I feel like American opera as an art form kind of has this outlook of syncretism, which is a fancy word for combining <laughs> things that don't necessarily go together, things that don't necessarily agree. Mm. Uh, and I feel like American opera, a lot of what has been done. Whether it's whether the topic is about America or not, because you know, some of them are like the Tenderland, where it's here is an here is an American family in the heartland, and what will happen to them next? <laughs> Very e- American. Even the ones that don't aren't wearing gingham and don't have a farmhouse in the background. There's this sort of sense of taking a European art form and putting an American attitude on it. Things like you know current events and issues. Uh, a lot more ambiguity than some of the more than, than some of the more European operas from the from the 18th 19th century, uh, and I think that it it also a proximity to our other media like film and theater. You, they're they're a lot more closely related than you might think from looking at them the first time. Well, yeah. let, let's see how that plays out then. We've each picked a, a piece, and uh, I've got a person as well that I want to talk about, but we're going to do a doubleheader segment on this. And actually, Matt, we're going to, um, we'll start with you, but f- for first, to, to broaden the spectrum even more, what kind of shows come to mind when we're talking about syncretism and American opera, Weston? Well, you definitely want to think about, uh, when I think syncretism and opera, I definitely think about the um, the other sort of musical theatery elephant in the room musical theater um, <laughs> uh, so I mean uh, I, I think I think you know as much as I, I love opera uh, and tend to prefer it to you know uh, the classic Broadway musical format that is a distinct element that often gets that often winds up in American opera and I think the reason for that is because uh, the United States doesn't really have the same backbone stretching back to, you know, centuries upon centuries like some, you know, European countries do. Right. Our first, uh, the first grand opera written by an American known to have been performed is uh, an opera called Leonora, which was written by William Henry, Fi- William Henry Fry rather, in 1845. That is really, really late in the game because you know Monteverdi is composing in uh, 1607 is mm-hmm. uh, is Lorfeo, and then uh, England's got something coming out of that uh, right after that, and you know you have so that's yeah, like we're, that's we're almost... talking about like middle Verdi basically by the yeah, time America yeah, even which, gets in the game, which is at this point opera is a fully developed art form. Whereas the U.S. is just starting out, they're fresher-faced, and uh, and even even though uh, Fry's opera was in 1845, um, it's not in the modern repertoire at all. Nor is uh, the work of John Philip Sousa. I've always wanted to do a, a Sousa opera. He's got two big ones. One is called <laughs> El Capitan, which is a sort of poor man's Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh, but there's okay, this that other makes piece sense. he wrote called The Glass Blowers. Mm. Which I just feel like would be a phenomenal <laughs> choice. It, it doesn't sound like his marches at all. There, I mean, okay, I was about to ask. The is there a lot King. of umpop? <laughs> the March King. Any piccolos? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is what I found interesting. Operabase.com, where I get a lot of the statistics for the show, is when you look at living composers, three of the top six most performed composers are American. And you guys could guess that, but specifically, this is Philip Glass, oh, yeah. Jake Heggie, okay. and John Adams. Uh, two, an additional two of those top six are writing in English. So clearly what you're seeing is that the English language is dominating the late 20th, early 21st century, and specifically American voices are dominating 
what this art form is is becoming. We're catching up, in other words. We're catching up. It's t- it took us a while. I don't think we really got there until at least the advent of minimalism in the 60s and 70s. And those stats don't even include Leonard Bernstein because he, he's, oh, that's he's a good dead, point. right? Yeah. I was just talking about living composers. Okay. Giancarlo Minotti, also dead, but he, he didn't even <laughs> rate. In fact, he didn't even rate on the top... Forty. Well, most I mean, why, why would you? Why would you time? do Manati he's, outside of America? He's been going through. I mean, his reputation has been going through a rough patch for a while. Why, yeah. do you, why do you say that? People like to hate. Like to hate on him because there are some people in the business who are really prominent and just absolutely yeah. hate Manati. They I, I don't want to. I have it. to admit, they don't want to do it. I am in the Manati hate camp. I do not like Manati. And you're not at even all. prominent in the business. I'm not. So. I mean, I mean, as far as I know, I mean, uh, let me know if I am. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how big my you're, following you're is. You're huge in Nigeria. No, no, no that's true. He's yeah. huge anywhere. <laughs> hey, hello. <laughs> all right, let's let's get specific here. Uh, Matt Cummings, it's Opera Box Score, by the way. We're talking about American operas defining the genre to get you guys ready for. Independence Day on WNUR 89.3 FM. Matt Cummings, tell us about your American opera selection. I picked an opera that's near and dear to my heart, which is near and dear to my house, which is uh, (laughs) Carlisle Floyd's Susanna. Oh, nice. Good choice. And this is an opera I've already, I've been in twice in in the last couple years uh, uh, as Little Bat, which is a lot of fun. And we'll, we'll come back to him a little bit later. Uh, the opera of Susanna is based on uh, a story from the Bible of Susanna, who is spied on by the elders while she's bathing, to some of the elders from the from the town. And while in the in the Bible story they're brought to justice, in the opera it, things take a turn for the worse, and her life is completely ruined. Honestly, mm. it, it's it's one of the most performed American operas after Porgy and Bess. It it at one point was the most performed American opera. I'm not mm. sure if that if that's still true. I, I don't but. think it is, but uh, it, it is a good one. I really, I really love this opera, and I'm glad you picked it. Yeah, it was, it was written in, in 1955, premiere, and uh, while you're talking about American opera, one of the leading voices in American opera was New York City opera back in the day, and that was who did the professional premiere of this show in 1956. And then actually in 1958, they took it to, to Brussels to represent America in the World's Fair. Ooh. So yeah, it's it's a it's a compact piece. It's really it's pretty short. It's not even two hours of music, and uh, but it's really daunting in scale in terms of the the emotional depth and in terms of you know how much I feel like you can mine it for for statements about American society. I feel like that's a very indicative thing of an American opera, particularly. It tends to be short, compact, super emotional, and always attacks some regional issue. And I think that's one of the things I like about Carlisle Floyd is that he often uh, tackles sort of Southern issues, mm-hmm. which as a person born in the Deep South, I always really uh, appreciate. Uh, it's got a sort of a almost Faulkner-esque quality sometimes. Mm-hmm. To Absolutely. Him. There's a, um, there's, yeah, it's great. Yeah, there's definitely like a Southern Gothic feeling about mm-hmm. this because it's mm-hmm. set in New Hope Valley, which is a made-up place in rural, we'll say Tennessee-ish kind of area. I, th- I feel like that that's what he's drawing on without explicitly saying it. And but it's a lot of it is about what goes on in these small in these tightly knit small communities where you would think that people would stick together, but there is an awful <laughs> lot of backstabbing. There's a very small leap between this piece and something like Dark Sisters by Nico Mooley, actually, mm. to, to draw a comparison to a 21st century opera, which is about that small religious community where things can go horribly, horribly wrong. What are some of the other themes in the piece, Matt? Yeah, there's definitely a a sense of tribalism. You're kind of dropped into the piece in the middle of it. The opera starts at the square dance and... You know, half all the stages, everyone on stage is moving around, and you hear all the elders in the church and their wives talking and gossiping and being pretty nasty about this young girl who's just here dancing around, and that's uh, that's Susanna. And a lot of the opera is about her her loss of innocence in in terms of uh, being confronted with all of these external forces and having to deal with them herself. Uh, and I think, I mean, as someone who who played Little Bat. I'm, I tend to think that he he plays a huge part in the themes of the opera as well in terms of that loss of be, losing his innocence and having to grow up too soon and just having all these external forces beyond the control. 
Well, let's take a listen to some of the music. What do you have uh, lined up? Yeah, let's let's start with one of the mo- one of the most famous clips of this, which is uh, "Ain't It a Pretty Night," and we have Renee Fleming who who was performing an excerpt of this at the well, she performed the whole thing, but here's an excerpt of her performance at the Richard Tucker Gala in 1995. Think the stars can all be gone and see we beyond where we can, and they can see we beyond the mountains to Nashville and Asheville and Knoxville. I wonder what it's like there up there beyond the mountains where the folks talk nice and the folks dress nice, like a sea in the middle of a times i've heard that in an audition (laughs) and then i I, because i never heard that recording before and now i get to hear renee fleming do it man it's going to be hard to go back it's there's there's a reason why this role was pretty important in her career she did it at lyric and i think 1993 and then she took it to the met when they did the when they did their first performance of it in i want to say 1999 and if you were to if i were to describe come up with you know, comparisons between the music and Susanna and some other European operas. It it sort of feels in a lot in a lot of ways Puccinian. There's you know there's mm-hmm. a there's a lot of arch. You can feel you like the blood is just pouring out all over the stage, and and the passion of it. But the harmony is not Puccinian, and that's really what mm-hmm. what is the biggest difference for me in Carlisle Floyd's com- compositional style here is he drew on that kind of southern Appalachian sound of folk music. And even when it's dressed up as Verismo opera, it doesn't lose necessarily its Americanness. I and feel like Copeland would do something very similar. Uh, I think Floyd land. did it better, though. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm hating a lot of um, the American composers here. But Copeland's another one where I, where I kind of take issue with sometimes. But I think, I think uh, the thing about Floyd is that he does not sort of generalize as in the way that Copeland does. Mm-hmm. He's very specific. He's like, these are the people I'm talking about right here. I'm going to emphasize their traditions. I'm not going to sort of step out broadly and make it, this is whole America. Yeah. This is part of America. And even within this piece, the the different characters have really different music. Susanna's music sounds different from the elders' music, which sounds different from Blitch's music, which sounds different from... Uh, little bats music mm-hmm. and there are there are parts of the opera where characters are are talking about other characters and their music sounds like that character like there's there's a scene in act 2 where Susanna and Blitch are arguing Blitch and she, is re, the reverend the reverend reverend, the reverend Olin Blitch the reverend Olin Blitch I'm really tongue tied is a traveling preacher who comes into town and after the elders see Susanna spying in the creek, he tries to get her to repent, and she, ref- she will, she won't repent because she hasn't done anything wrong. And during this argument, she completely breaks down, and he takes advantage of her, and that really gets, gets that gets us moving towards the the ultimate tragedy of the piece that I won't spoil for you. Definitely no spoilers. Uh, so, what's your Matt? What's your personal intersection then with this piece? So it's these are characters that you don't necessarily get that much information about from from the text itself, but you can feel it in the way that they interact. You know, little little Bat's parents are the most prominent elders in the town, but he never talks to them in the entire opera. The only character he talks to is Susanna, which can tell you a lot about their relationship even without it existing. And that that I think is goes to the specificity of this opera in that it feels like a movie. It feels like a it feels like a real place in just about every element except Susanna herself, who's like a little bit too perfect of a character, maybe. But 
but when you look at it, her in terms of the her as, as a symbol of innocence and with all the the forces around her, it it has a lot to say about how people are treated in these communities. Little Bat was a role that you've played. He was in the show. Was that both times? Both times. Both times. Oh and man! And it, it was really different both times because it had to do. It has to do with you know what the director sees in him, and in, uh, he is a character who is usually interpreted as being developmentally disabled mm. and the he doesn't really understand what's happening he's he's tricked by his parents and by the other elders in the church into saying that Susanna let let him love her up and did all kinds of and that they did all kinds of things together in their friendship which isn't true and it they they have a huge confrontation at the end of act 1 that anytime we rehearsed it I would run off stage and just be like dripping with sweat and one time <laughs> But, uh, my friend who was playing Susanna and I, we had to just like hug each other for a couple minutes because it was so intense for us on stage, let alone, you know, off the stage. What part of this role uh, do you want to listen to tonight? Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to play a little bit, uh, a little clip of that confrontation right now. This is from the studio recording. So um, you can hear at the end of that clip, even you, the strings are playing uh, Susanna's other big aria, the trees on the mountain underneath while they're fighting. And that, you know, that that confrontation for me sums up a lot of what I feel about this opera, which is that it's not tidy. It's not it's not easy. And it, it but it's really raw and it's really human. And it honestly feels like watching a movie when you go to go see it. And that is what for me makes it such a great American opera is that it takes uh, it, it takes a European art form and puts our own individual spin on it. USA, USA. <laughs> Thank you, Weston, for destroying the moment. You're welcome. <laughs> I, a, I do my best. What a great choice. Matt Cummings on Carlisle Floyd's Susanna. More opera Americana to get you ready for the fourth. That's next, only on Opera Box Score and WNUR FM Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us this evening on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist in studio live with Matt Cummings. Hello there. And Weston Williams. Hello there. Number in the studio, 847-866-9687. We're getting you ready for... American Independence Day, Stars and Stripes Forever. Let us know what you think is a classic American opera or an essential critical American opera artist. We were just talking about Carlisle Floyd's opera, Susanna. This is an interesting 
take, Weston. Yep, yep, yep. On Three, a little curveball. This is definitely a cur- America's pastime. I got that. <laughs> um, Sport. It, this this is definitely not Susanna. What, what's your show? This is um, the Aufsteig und Fall der Stadt Mahagoni. Uh, and uh, and that is, uh, of course, The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahagoni by uh, Kurt Weil and our good friend Bertolt Brecht. And if you wouldn't mind uh, uh, setting up the next clip, um, this is, uh, uh, I just want you to listen to this and just kind of close your eyes and imagine this is uh, late 1920s and you're in a dance hall. <laughs> We got a little bit of oompa pause there, even if we didn't talk too much about <laughs> Sousa earlier. Um, I just wanted to play that and have you imagine that setting, because I think that's where this uh, opera has this sort of the syncretic elements um, that uh, Matt was talking about earlier. Um, now, I should point out, and you probably noticed by my uh, flawless German pronunciation earlier. It's your best language. It, it really is. It, it, my other ones are just completely useless. But this was actually a German opera. So the question is, well, why do I why do I do a German opera when we're talking about these American operas? Well, um, I would argue, um, especially since the U.S. got started a little bit late, um, uh, and the fact that the U.S. is now pretty much the dominant power in the world, for better or worse, the uh, other countries' perceptions of the United States in their art is just as important, if not more important, um, uh, in, in this case. And this is a really interesting time for America. This is the 1920s. Um, uh, the, the, the opera actually came out in 1930, but it was being composed as early as 1925 um, and in various stages by Bertolt Brecht and uh, Kurt Weill. Uh, and this was very much a, an interpretation of the United States as it existed then uh, in the 1920s. So to set the stage here, this uh, takes place in the American South, more or less. And uh, this is really Brecht's and Weill's famed poor, poor grasp on uh, American geography uh, because, uh, you know, it, it's all very vague. You're not quite sure where these things happen. I have a little fan theory that the that Mahagoni is actually a stand-in for Birmingham, Alabama, which is where I was born and grew up. Maybe it's in New Hope <laughs> Valley somewhere. They're just all hanging out together. Um, but uh, m- the reason I say that is because um, it's uh, the, the opening of the opera. You have a bunch of criminals who are kind of on the run from the law, and they their car breaks down in the middle of nowhere, i.e. Alabama, uh, and uh, they're like, well, let's start a city. <laughs> and they build up this city run by criminals, and everyone comes down, and it comes sort of comes out of nowhere, uh, much like the city of Birmingham did about 10 years prior to this opera's composition. Hmm. Uh, so that's my fan theory. Uh, but it's very much... Uh, it's very much an interesting look, an interesting glance into how Germans saw America and American music, not just Germans, but Amer- uh, but Europeans in general, because as we pointed out, opera is a European art form. Um, uh, but always for the past few centuries bef- prior to this, uh, American classical music was very conservative. There was nothing really coming out that was super unique um, to American, the American sound, uh, other than popular music. So like uh, African-American spirituals, uh, Native American music, uh, which is very much the inspiration for, you know, Dvorak's New World Symphony and works like that. As a matter of fact, after the New World Symphony premiered and was a huge hit, um, uh, a lot of young composers were being taught to compose in that style mm-hmm. as, as the uh, new American style, even though Dvorak was himself Czech. Um, and so when you listen to this piece, 
what are you hearing in the melodies, the harmonies, the instrumentation, which speaks to this this Americana that we're talking about? I'm hearing jazz. Jazz is the big American musical import of the export, rather, of this time period. Mm-hmm. You hear those dance hall rhythms, and you've got uh, a little bit of the jazz harmonies going on. And again, this is a very German interpretation of it, so it's very much being filtered through German cabaret music. But it's it's all very it's very much there, and that's where Vile was very much enamored of the American sound. Trumpets with mutes, saxophones, saxophones banjo. all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a really cool bit, um, which we won't play, but there's a really cool bit where there's a little saxophone solo that goes, did it. you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, but uh, uh, but this is this is also a very glaring critique um, of the United States. Uh, it is not entirely celebratory because. As we said before, this was uh, this was this is a city built by criminals, uh, where people go to uh, eat, drink, and be merry, and just nothing else. There's no care for their fellow man. Uh, the general gist of the opera, uh, after they set up town, uh, just uh, flocks of ne'er do wells, prostitutes, sort of flock in and start to make it make Mahagoni their home. Uh, and I'd like to play a little clip, and this is uh, this is actually uh, the person who originated this role, uh, Lotte Lenya, who is Kurt Weil's wife, and she was a German cabaret singer, not an opera singer. This is a recording from uh, 1930-31-ish. It's very old, so give it a play. Weston, what an absolutely brilliant choice of Isn't a recording. It great? Like it's so crackly. Lotelenia's voice is instantly recognizable, but you still get those trombones. It's in the it's such a it's a remarkably good recording. And uh, if any of you thought that was familiar, you might recognize it from the Doors cover of the song way back when. Um, it's also been covered by Lee by David Bowie and stuff. It's very much this popular really? music. Really? Bowie covered yeah, that? Yeah, well? he, he did a cover of it. Uh, he incorporated it into uh, one of his albums, I forget which. I definitely remember getting drunk li- to the Doors <laughs> cover of um, um, Moon of Alabama. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's got that instantly recognizable tune. It's very much a cabaret jazz style. She, Lata Lenya is not an opera singer. She, no. Uh, not even, not by a long <laughs> shot uh even even but, in her prime uh she was nowhere near um that level of technique um but she still had but that's part of this syncretic thing you know you you've got this popular style being melded in with this sophisticated german uh classical style um uh, and matt is waving his hands and, and, at me <laughs> well i'm stuck i'm stuck back in the corner but that go that goes so much to just vile and brecht's you know, philosophy of theater, which is that it wasn't there to make you happy. It wasn't there to be fun. It was there to confront you. It was there to make you uncomfortable. And they really go for it in every aspect of it with, with 
presenting music that you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear in an opera house. But this this piece has been done at the Metropolitan Opera too. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did it, I think, in the eighties, and I want to which, say tr- which I still think was a really gutsy choice for the Met, even today. This is a very kind of relevant piece of art here. This is uh, very much uh, about the uh, the problems with capitalism. Uh, Brecht at this point is pr- is is pretty much all the way socialist. Um, very much, uh, you know. Uh, that kind of character. As a matter of fact, um, there's a there's a there's a scene in which Pensacola is absolutely destroyed by a hurricane, which is really funny because that's how Pensacola is going to be destroyed one day. Um, it's so funny though. This piece is not done a lot in America. I mean, yes, the Met. Yes, it was done at L.A. Opera a few years ago with Patty Lupone, I think, in the oh the really main female role. Oh, that'd but be in that'd general, interesting choice. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, you know, when you look at statistically where it's being done, like just not a lot in the U.S., partly because of the orchestral forces required, partly because of the chorus that is needed. But I think there's something in this piece which is a little too close to the bone Absolutely. for American audiences. Absolutely. And, and the, on top of that, it's a piece that requires a huge amount of forces in a method, like in a format that works well intimately. Yeah, there's there's a very much a, a it's very personal. It gets in your face. There's a there's a there basically what ends up happening is there's 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 a bet placed uh, on a guy who is clearly not going to win a boxing tournament. Uh, this guy places a bet. I believe uh, Joe and Jimmy. I forget which ones are which. Uh, I believe Joe matter. is Joe is the one in the fight. Uh, Jimmy places a bet on him because he's his friend. Uh, Joe loses so badly that he gets killed, um, uh, and uh, but uh, but Jimmy doesn't have the money to pay off the the bet, so he goes to trial. The guy who killed uh, Joe gets off scot free, um, but how? But uh, Jimmy is sentenced to death because quote in the whole human race there is no greater criminal than a man without money, which is in a great Brecht quote. <laughs> I mean. There is you could never say that a Brecht play or opera was slow on the plot. Like no. stuff just <laughs> happens and happens and happens and happens and then it's over and that's it. And there's there's virtually no time for like reflection or beard stroking. Like it just happens and happens. It's it's very very much punch you and knock out and kill you kill you dead. You know, that that's that's what it's all about. And I think it's a very uh, sort of American thing to have that immediateness and to have what's the least American thing about it is the uh, is its ability to sort of confront these problems in a realistic way, uh, which could only be really taken by someone who would eventually become an immigrant, uh, a refugee even from the Nazis. He would move. He would become, he would wrote a bunch of Vile wrote a bunch of stuff on Broadway. Uh, Brecht ended up here, too. Um, they never really collaborated again in the United States. But um, it's a great summation, Weston Williams, on Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany as his choice of a classic American opera. Thinking outside the box there, Weston. USA. Like USA. Einigen Staaten America. Love it. Love it. I'm going to start with my music clip, actually, and we're just going to listen to this, and then we'll discuss what we've heard. Maybe our listeners are going to be able to uh, figure this one out. Sides, muffled by the cave, then came the seeds 
Well, even if you don't know what opera that is, I feel like identifying the composer is pretty straightforward. Uh, is it uh, uh, Aaron Copeland? If it, only. <laughs> <laughs> Alban Baer? Alban Baer. Is that Puccini? Well, it, it's Philip Glass, of course. <laughs> and it, it does have the simplicity, to me at least, of some of that Copeland music. I, mm. I think where I'm going to chime in here on what makes opera American is I'm going to talk about simplicity and clarity. Matt talked about Puccini earlier on, but again, those Puccini harmonies are not in something like Carlisle Floyd's Susanna. The orchestration of Rise and Fall is a rather uh, contemporary modern for the 1920s orchestration. When you listen to Philip Glass, that was in the Penal Colony, his piece that he wrote with librettist Rudy Wurlitzer, in the Penal Colony based on the Kafka short story, mm. it's written for string quintet. And you are hearing the same rhythmic phrases over and over again. Here's the thing. What's actually, the thing, George? Ha, actually, Matt, have you ever sung in uh, a Philip Glass opera? No, I haven't. When I, I, so I directed this uh, a couple years ago. And when I first listened to the music, I was bored to tears. <laughs> it was kind of like when I first listened to Baroque music, to be mm. honest with you. I just I couldn't wrap my head around it. And the more I rehearsed this piece, the more hypnotic it became, and the more I started to hear the details in the piece, details of articulation, details of dynamics. And there came a point in the rehearsal process when I realized this was some of the most complex music I'd ever heard. It just took me time to get into that, into that world. Now, as an audience member listening to it the first time, I don't know if you're if you're gonna get all that. Although, if the piece is Einstein on the beach and it's eight hours long, you got plenty. <laughs> of By time. hour seven, you'll See, you'll that, have it pretty figured out. That's how I got into Philip Glass because I I thought he was the same way, incredibly boring. But then I just was like, okay, I'm gonna sit down. And I'm gonna commit to watching this live broadcast of Einstein on the beach mm -hmm. from the Champs Elysees. And I yes. watched the entire thing. I was watching the stream so I could just go to the bathroom and, and pee while I watched it uh, to get a little bit graphic <laughs> with it. a lot it. of information. Uh, just so you all know, I did have to pee Gross. in the middle of Einstein on the Beach. But but at a certain point, you really... So just pause, dude. <laughs> it was and a live stream. Live, it was George. a live stream. I was watching it live. It was a live stream in the bathroom as well. Uh, oh, that was gross. Uh, okay, uh, okay. Away. I'm sorry. But I, it, really, it really did require this intense recontextualization of the music that sort of happened as you listened to it. Uh, and I think that's the magic of Philip Glass. That was the Music Theater Wales production. So I split my time here in talking about what I think is a, a classic American opera in Philip Glass. I've got to talk about a classic American director as well, and that would be Peter Sellers. I, in my opinion, there is no single individual, certainly as a director, that has grown and changed the art form of opera in America like Peter Sellers. I mean, he, first of all, there's this longevity factor that this guy has been doing it since the early 80s mm. and is going strong as ever. He has a new piece um, which is coming to the Ravinia Festival in, I think it's early September, actually. Now, the irony... Go ahead. Well, it's funny to me that you mentioned... Uh, Peter Sellers and Baroque music in the same in the same breath is because the thing that I've seen of Peter Sellers is is when he did Hercules downtown mm -hmm. and I was really not expecting to like that show that much because Baroque yeah. opera for me too I like a lot of the music it just comes in a bigger package than I'm willing to sit down and digest all at once usually but he was absolutely scrupulous with making sure that every single section meant something different and it, the the amount of detail that went into it really came through for me, and I was glad I had the chance to hear him talk about that ahead of time, ahead of going to see it up at Northwestern, because it, it, it absolutely came through. Well, in person, he's wonderfully approachable as well. I, be I believe he's a Buddhist. I think I'm right in saying that. And he's just so warm and inviting, and he's famous for giving everybody he meets a hug. I have met him in person. He certainly doesn't know who I am. Got a big hug. Got a big old hug. Peter Same. Sellers. The irony, of course, is that he doesn't really work that much in the U.S. When you look at his uh, past productions over, say, the last five years and what's coming up next, yes, apart from Girls of the Golden West, which was um, 
in uh, San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, his production of Dr. Tomic is uh, coming to Santa Fe this season. In general, a lot of his work is not in the U.S. Now, what he's been able to do is what many uh, other directors haven't really wrapped their heads around. And this idea came from, from Daniel Kramer, artistic director at English National Opera, who spoke at the Opera America conference. And he said, look, America is currently constructing opera. So in our productions of the standard rep, we are building the narrative. We are building the stories here. And I'm talking about your Traviatas, your Carmens, your Magic Flutes. Europe, with 200, 250 years on the American process, is no longer constructing opera. They are now deconstructing opera. They are taking hmm. operas and putting the parts in different orders. They are taking operas and inserting other operas into the middle of them or sporadically through them. Or setting Lohengrin in a group of lab rats. Exactly. Right. So they are deconstructing the art from Sellers has deconstructed from day one. Oh, yeah. That is why he is so far ahead, and that is why he is the the vanguard. He is the very prow of this ship of opera that is sailing through the waters of this country. And despite some of his, uh, what a lot of, I think, normal, everyday American opera goers would consider weird choices, he has this artistic honesty to him that really that really sells whatever ideas that he's putting up there, no matter how weird or out there it might seem. It's because he knows the text inside out. It's because he has a, an incredible knowledge of so many different d- disciplines, and he really is the consummate director who... In this, as a director in opera, you have to know so much about so many different things, and Sellers has absolutely captured that. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really great thing too. I I haven't seen any of his productions live, but I've I've sought him out on YouTube, uh, and I've 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 loved all of his stuff. It's if you, great. If you can find him live, try and find him live. Do it. And I, if you can't, a great place to start would be watching the the De Ponte Mozart operas that he did with mm-hmm. the, that are there are really famous video recordings of. Uh, there's Don Giovanni with where Leporello and Don Giovanni are played by a pair of identical twin brothers, I so that it. when they s- switch costumes. The plot actually makes sense for once. <laughs> genius. Total genius. We're going to wrap this segment up. There is so much more about American opera that obviously we couldn't put into this segment. I think about um, all of the chamber operas that are coming out of America right now. There is no question, in my opinion, that the t- 2010s have been defined by the American chamber opera. Looking at composers like David T. Little, composer and librettist themes, Missy Mazzoli and Royce Vavrek, Laura Kaminsky and Sir Mark Campbell, um, <laughs> Kevin Putz, Ricky Ian Gordon, Tobias Picker, Matt. You've got a whole roster of other full yeah. productions. Yeah, if you're talking about like the some of the old stalwarts that got us to where we are today, there's you know Gershwin, Por- Porgy and Bess. There's Virgil Thompson's The Mother of Us All. Uh, uh, the musto that later the same evening is more in the more in the modern sense of the chamber opera. But and then if you're gonna stay with Court Vile, there's Street Scene, which is about yep. a block in the New York City tenement houses with immigrants from all over Europe, and he and he he uses that same kind of eclectic style to show what it's like to be in the melting pot of New York City in in between the wars. It we it's a really rich history. And I'm glad that we got a chance to take a look at it tonight. I mean, again, syncretism. All of these works have done what this... They've done musically and dramatically what this country has done socially, which has taken many different forms and put them all together, even if they're loggerheads with each other. And they've made them work and they've made them moving. Uh-oh, attendance is down at the Vienna State Opera. That's next on... America's Talk radio show about opera. Keep it locked. WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear a hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. The Bayreuth Festival has announced that, quote, Roberto Alagna will not be singing the role of Lohengrin, end quote. The artist informed the festival through his agency, who said Mr. Alagna has had to cancel the new production of Lohengrin because he wasn't able to sufficiently study the part due to work overload. Zurich Opera has announced that music director and conductor Fabio Luisi will leave a year early in 2021. Luisi recently became music director of the Dallas Symphony, and his successor will be Gian Andrea Nozeda, who, of course, was out at the Opera di Torino last month. Nozeda is currently music director in Washington, D.C. Uh, Vienna State Opera has announced its end of season stats. Revenues hit a record high of over 35 million euros. That was up 93,000 on the previous year. The house played to 98.61% capacity, slightly down from 98.83 in 2016-2017. Paris Opera is putting on concert versions of their productions for a second straight week right now because of several trade unions uh, are in dispute over a pay grade in one part of the company. They're on strike. Exit stage right. The Italian baritone Claudio Desteri has passed away. After a 1969 debut at the Edinburgh Festival in Rossini's Il Signor Bruschino, he became a fixture at Salzburg, Gleinborn, Pizarro in Mozart and Rossini roles. Big achievement at the Scala in Milan, where he sang Cenerentola and L'Italiana in Algeri. That was conducted by Claudio Abbado, directed by Jean-Pierre Ponel. And he was also a major force in the Mozart de Ponte trilogy, conducted by Muti, directed by Giorgio Strehler. And on this day, July 2nd, composer Christoph Willibald Gluck was born in 1714. Soprano Beverly Sills died in 2007. That's your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box School with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on... Opera box score. Not a full house exactly, but uh, you got George Cedarquist right here. You've got Matt Cummings. Back and in the got, corner. Back and you in got the me. Corner. You got Weston Williams as well. Uh, Cummings, we're going to start with you. Oh, come on, Roberto Alagna. Who drops out of Lohengrin with, you know, what is it, <laughs> two weeks' notice, something oh, like that? Oh, goodness. I bet they are not happy about that. You know, I, thought he, I really thought he was past this part of his career where he had to just act like the bad boy. And I, wa- I honestly wonder how much of it is because he's really just used to doing French and Italian opera roles. And I, he's a fluent French speaker and probably close to fluent Italian speaker. Yeah. And German is a different animal. It's a different monster. And I bet it was just more than he bargained for at this point. But, Come on, dude. Grow a pair. But you know, learn something new. That's really no and, excuse. Yeah, that's, I, don't, I don't get this. To have to be bailed out by your manager or what have you. Yeah, it's it's a little tricky. I don't think they have a replacement lined up yet for him. Either. No, no, they're still looking. Uh, and apparently, Bayreuth actually wants to sue him. Oh, really? For breach of contract. That's that's a little bit of hearsay. I'm not going to get too much into that because okay. I, I can't okay. double check those those uh, sources. But um, definitely problems in Bayreuth. There, this always seems to be drama in Bayreuth, and I don't mean on stage. It's the curse. <laughs> it's the, it's the, the cur- it's the curse of the Bambino. Yeah, it's the curse of the ring. Yeah, that, that'll do it. <laughs> of Cosima. 
<laughs> yeah. Weston, over to you. What's your uh, hot take? I am uh, very thrilled by the Vienna, uh, Vienna Staatsoper. Uh, their numbers, the record highs are super encouraging just for us, you know, in, in our, you know, little world here. Although I believe uh, that... How are those encouraging, man? Aren't I, those depressing? 90, I, uh, okay, well, the, the, that it's the numbers in... You know, point. <laughs> it's, it's all relative because, you know, I, c- could you imagine a U.S. company with that kind of capacity? That's why I say it's depressing, is that no American opera house is remotely close. And hey, correct me if I'm wrong, 847-866-9687. <laughs> Let me know if your opera house is playing at 98.61% capacity. In fairness, though, I mean, uh, this not in fairness, it, it, I think there's some reason for optimism that a house like the Staatsoper can do it. I mean, can, you you can't really compare Vienna to it's just it, it in Vienna itself. That city is so it's spending all of its time trying to make it 1904 again through magic. Back when they were the center of when they were the cultural capital of Europe, you can't buy season tickets to the Vienna Staatsoper. You have to inherit them. I'm pretty sure that that is true i mean i i, I was <laughs> able i was able to get into a production of Wozzeck can, just by buying can, copper scalpers you can get it's possible tickets, but you can't get season tickets. okay you season can't tickets. get a box Fine. yeah but you have to inherit tickets to the green bay packers as That's, well yeah so i mean i i, I think Synergy. there's reason for hope in that <laughs> the conservative i think least interesting large house in vienna can still have these super high numbers i um, i think that the that it's the other way that they have these numbers because they're the conservative house that does. Uh, well, there's uh, something to be said for that, I see. suppose. But at the at the same time, I I, I I don't know the numbers for like you know the theater on the Wien or the Volksoper or places like this. But uh, having having been there once or twice, uh, they they seem to be more full, more vibrant, more full of younger people, and jo- almost. As full, if not as full, as the Staatsoper. And a lot of tourists, too. Uh, th- exactly. Cultural tourism is huge That's in true. Vienna. You I get was... accosted by men dressed up as Mozart around <laughs> every corner. <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> Those tools. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're, okay, you're going to go to Vienna. What are you going to do? In no particular order, you're going to have, like... You're going to have schnitzel and sausages. Exactly. You're going to have on the reason of rod, of tort. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you're and you're probably gonna go to the opera house. Get assaulted by a man in a Mozart costume. Check check well, check. You, well, you can't not get assaulted. By, I mean, not <laughs> phys- accosted. We'll say. I don't know. There were some pretty aggressive ones when I was there. Just like, do you want tickets? I'm like, no, please, you don't should, hurt me, Mozart. You should go to the art museums. Oh yeah, there's some. Oh, good they've got some there. crazy stuff in those yeah. modern art museums yeah, in yeah. Vienna. Shout out to these uh, union guys on strike in Paris. It's yeah, I'm I'm down with that. Absolutely, I'm part of a union. That's that's their right. They should be on strike. They they should be fighting for this. Yeah, absolutely. Especially given the uh, recent news in the U.S. about uh, the certain Supreme Court decisions not le- kind of weakening ours over here. It's nice to see them being at play, even if it's elsewhere. Uh, it's another. Is it encouraging that it's happening in Europe or discouraging that it's not happening here? Sort of thing. Uh, don't but get me started. I don't know if we can open that can of worms. Yeah. In yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap it up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out tonight, gentlemen. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you for having us, Thanks George. to our listeners, of course, wherever you are and however you're listening. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Good call, bad call. This is from Oliver, actually. Friend of the show, Santosh Venkatraman, gives his take on the Opera America conference in his current column for Opera Wire. The link is on our website on the Good Call, Bad Call page. You know, at the conference, I actually hung out a lot with Santosh. Oh, really? Hanging out and being, being buds? Just friend drinking, of the show? drinking and talking opera. I had a total blast. He's a great guy. He's yeah. got a lot to say. He, he's a party animal, and he wouldn't mind me <laughs> saying that. does that. not surprise me one bit, George, it, I have to say. It should not surprise <laughs> you. <laughs> Matt Cummings, what you got? I saw in the New York Times this weekend through an article that they, were, that they wrote about Stefan Herrhein that he is finally going to make it to... The Metropolitan Opera. They're doing a, pro- a revival of his uh, of his pro- production of Les Vepres Siciliennes, and I also just want to give a shout out to Beverly Sills, who who died on this day, mm. and she a huge proponent of American opera herself. Operas like Douglas Moore's Ballad of Baby Doe was one of the first singers that I fell in love with, and maybe a future 
Hall of Fame contender. Oh, and speaking of uh, American opera, the first full recording of Dr. Atomic by our good friend uh, John Adams dropped last week. Uh, so uh, if you're one of the fancies like me has been waiting for 13 years, go get it. Really good. Can highly recommend it. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer, Norm Woodell. You can visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And hey, please leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera at your backyard barbecue this week. We're back on Monday, July 9th, 9 p.m. Central. More interviews, opera news, hot takes, plus the Opera Box Score Opera World Cup. It is going to blow your mind. Please join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment. Go to a 